Father in heaven, we do thank you for this opportunity to get together and study you and your word, your hand in history, and how you have dealt with your people and worked with your people and protected your people. We thank you so much for the way that you have providentially preserved your word for us. You have prevented it from being altered. You prevented it from being added to or subtracted from. You have providentially made certain that we have your word exactly as you wanted us to have it. We thank you for that and we ask that you would help us to be invigorated by the things that we learned this evening to go forth and to continue defending your word and defending your truth and proclaiming it to the nations. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So tonight, church history, we're looking at the heresies of the early church. This is part three. We're going to look at another heresy this evening called Montanism. Will the real Montanists please stand up? There have been and still are many different interpretations of the Montanists. Were they an early women's rights group, a form of monasticism, a strange group waiting for the end of the world, an early Pentecostal group? They were a bit of all of these, but, but none of them completely. The movement started when a man named Montanus began preaching and gathering a following. He was from Phrygia, an area near the Black Sea in what is today Turkey. He was originally a pagan priest, but had recently become a convert to Christianity by the time he began his movement. In 177, he was excommunicated by the church in Phrygia. There were two female prophets with him, Maximilla and Priscilla, which showed that he gave women an important role in his work. He believed that with his preaching, the new age of the Holy Spirit had dawned, that the Holy Spirit dwelt in himself bodily. This meant that the end of the world was at hand and the new Jerusalem would descend from heaven in Phrygia, a small village called Apusa. It's interesting how so many false teachers uh, see themselves as playing a very prominent role in God, the work that God is doing, and they, they see their particular area as very important in, in God's plan also. For example, in uh, when Joseph Smith was starting Mormonism, he, uh, he believed that the Garden of Eden was located in Missouri, which was just happened to be where he was. So that's a tendency that we often see with false teachers of seeing themselves as very important and seeing their locale as very important. Montanus claimed that first there had been the age of the Father, but with the birth of Christ, the age of the Son began. Now the third age, the final eight one has arrived. The law of Moses was given for the first age. The second instituted the law of Christ, which is even more demanding. Now 
in the age of the spirit and even stricter law has been given. This meant that the Montanists generally exhibited the works of charity that were characteristic of early Christianity, as well as keeping the faith in the face of persecution. They formed communities in which celibacy was urged. Second marriages were strictly prohibited. There were martyrs among the Montanists, which was not true of the Gnostics. Moreover, the Montanists appeared, apparently had spontaneous martyrs who volunteered and purposely sought out martyrdom. The wider church did not approve of this. To be a martyr was a calling from God. One should not seek to be one. If one could avoid being arrested or charged with being a Christian without being false to the faith, that was the course to be chosen. So if you have to be a martyr, be a martyr, but don't seek out martyrdom. The message of the Montanists was not at all Gnostic. The stress on celibacy was because the end was at hand, not because of any rejection of material reality. It's not that they felt that matter was bad, like, like the Gnostics did, like Marcion did. Montanists agreed with much of the church's teaching, especially about who Jesus was and his relation to the God of Israel. He didn't, he didn't deny the Old Testament like both the Gnostics and Marcion did. But there was a great deal about the church that he did reject, particularly its growing organization. We have seen that in the face of the Gnostic threat in Marcion, the church had begun to draw up its canon. The books it considered scripture needed to be as old as possible, dating from the time of the apostles. The church believed that new normative revelation ended with Jesus and the events surrounding his death and resurrection. The writings that were closest to that time were therefore the most trustworthy. Newer writings from the heretical Gnostic groups were rejected. And even later Orthodox writings were not included in the canon, though they were considered good for Christians to read. Montanus believed that the Holy Spirit was still revealing new truth through him and through others, and that therefore the canon should not be closed. There were instances of speaking in tongues as part of the new prophecies. So this idea that there is ongoing revelation and there's new revelation continually being revealed, that is not really a new idea. That's, this goes clear back to the second century when people were still not willing to accept that the canon was closed. They were still trying to insist that there was new truth being revealed. And of course, especially to them. Support for the movement appeared in Rome and went from there to Carthage in Roman North Africa. There the Montanist message took significant root in the West. It is this Western form of Montanism that I will emphasize, even though it may not be the original. In the West, there was little emphasis on new prophecy, which had been so important in the East. But the stricter law was appealing to many. The most famous convert to Montanism in the West was Tertullian. He became sympathetic to the Montanist movement in about, about 206 and is believed to have finally joined it in 212. We've already encountered Tertullian in his attacks on Marcion and the Gnostics. He was also influential in his understanding of the Trinity. He was extremely important, an extremely important writer in the West, the first to write theological treatises in Latin and the source of much very solid theology on the issues mentioned. 
However, he was much more rigid in his moral stance than many others in the church at that time. It was for this reason that Montanism appealed to him. In about 208, he wrote a treatise on fasting in which he justified the strict Montanist fast in or opposition to the more lax practices of the church. In that essay, he wrote, it is on this account that the new prophecies are rejected, not that Montanus and Priscilla and Maximilla preach another God, nor that they just join Jesus Christ from God, nor that they overturn any particular rule of faith or hope, but that they teach more fasting than Mary. His view was that the church was far too lenient regarding marriage, much more so than the Montanists, and also much too lax on fasting, but that on actual issues of theology, there was no disagreement. This was true in the West, where the issue of the imminent arrival of the New Jerusalem or the direct connection of the Holy Spirit and Montanists were not emphasized. So those were emphasized more in the East, not, not so much in the West. In Tertullian's days in the church, he had nothing good to say about women, but he seemed to tolerate women in leadership among the Montanists. We have seen that in response to the various threats it faced, the church had begun developing a strong structure. This hinged on bishops who, though elected by all Christians in, in a city, always all Christians in a city were considered one church, so they might meet most of the time in separate house churches. So they might meet in several house churches, but they were considered one church. Uh, had to submit a statement of faith to neighboring bishops. If the statement was, was accepted, then these bishops gathered to consecrate the new bishop. Through this method, both local election and wider approval were guaranteed. So this, this helped to, to safeguard the church and make sure that the doctrines taught by the apostles were perpetuated. If the statement of faith was not considered orthodox residence, then the community could elect another. Thus Gnostic or other heretical theologies could be weeded out before their adherents had positions of leadership. The Montanists did not like this increasingly tight structure. To some degree, this was a cultural clash, one we will find frequently in this early period. The great characteristic of Roman civilization was Roman law. This established positions in a civil society that had authority and power. The person who held the position had the use of this power, but it was granted by the position itself. Other societies were not so structured. In them, a person held power only because of personal strength or cunning. If a chief or king became physically weak by age or illness, stronger members of the society would wrest power away. In Roman society, however, as long as individuals held a position, they had the power associated with that position, no matter how physically weak or strong they were. Obviously, coups were always possible and they did occur, but that was, a, that was not a lawful way of doing things. Within the church, this had important consequences. The church was not concerned with physical power, but spiritual power was another matter. Holiness, clear, manifested holy behavior was a reason for power in the church's life. This is often called charismatic leadership. But as the Roman idea of structure was used more and more in the church, the conflict between two kinds of power became more obvious. If a bishop was elected because he had a relatively high social position, 
and this was frequently the case because literacy and education were needed for a religious group whose authority was written scripture. You, know, you needed people who were literate to be uh, in positions of leadership in the church because the, the scripture, the written scripture was very important and became more so as, as we moved further away from the uh, era of the, of the apostles. That person might be less obviously holy than some other members who had shown their holiness in persecution. So a non-Roman congregation might prefer the charismatic authority of the holy person rather than that of the elected one. Tertullian in, on fasting wrote, who among you Christians is superior in holiness, except him who is more frequent in banqueting, more sumptuous in catering, more learned in cups? If the prophets were pleasing to such, my prophets were not. So in other words, Tertullian is being very sarcastic here. He's saying, well, as far as you're concerned, a person who, who uh, is not as knowledgeable, he's literate and he's educated, uh, he's, he's uh, your leader, even if he doesn't, uh, even if he's just eating sumptuously all the time, not fasting. And that was not good as far as Tertullian was concerned. This concern for holiness had another dimension for the Montanists. Like many other Christians, they believed that the main body of the church, with some of its bishops providing forgiveness fairly easily, was becoming too lenient, too soft on sin. The Montanists were more demanding in their moral lives. Their message of holy living in the present reality of the Holy Spirit was very attractive to many Christians, especially in North Africa. It was the Montanist strictness that they liked, since they felt that the larger church was losing its original moral standards. Montanism developed and spread in the West partly because of the institutionalization of the church itself. This conflict between charismatic and institutional authority is something that happens in all movements if they last long enough. Movements usually begin with charismatic leadership, you know, people who are, are dynamic, who are uh, proclaiming the, the message that the group espouses, with personalities that embody the message of the group. This was clear with the original disciples, whose message of Jesus and the significance of his death and resurrection won so many converts. At the beginning, there was room for some flexibility in the way congregations developed and exactly what they believed. Paul's letters and Acts both show that there were women prophets and organizers, but eventually for the church in the second century, there was the danger of too much diversity so that the central message of the church could be lost. What the Gnostics and Marcion taught simply was not compatible with the gospel as the earlier church had known it. This led to the development of structures or improved teachings that would weed out the conflicting ones. This institutionalization meant the elimination of more charismatic leadership in favor of those whose teachings were certain. When specific positions are created and persons have authority because of the office, then it is much easier to lay out specific requirements that charismatic leadership did not impose. So they might uh, lay out, of course they would lay out uh, that in order to be a, a elder or a bishop, you had to be male. And then they might even uh, specify a certain age that you had to attain before you could be a pastor or an elder. So they, they laid out specific requirements and the Montanists didn't like that. They were more go with the flow type of people. In addition 
as the membership grew, especially when more socially prominent people joined, it was more difficult to keep the same strict lifestyle that was there earlier, when people generally from the fringes of society were overwhelmed with joy to be part of a new family, a new creation. The well-to-do had much more invested in the present creation and therefore tended not to be willing to part with its ways completely. As all of these things were happening in the church, the Montanists represented a desire to turn back the clock, to have charismatic leadership, strict moral standards, new revelations, allowing more room for the present working of the Holy Spirit. They may have had an idealized view of the earlier church, however. Their stricter standards were made more possible by the expectation of the end of the world in a brief span of time, brief enough that less institutionalizing would be necessary. So the Montanists felt that, you know, don't, don't spend your time organizing and institutionalizing. The end of the world is coming soon, so we, we need to get ready for this. In the West, it was the stricter moral standards that had the greatest appeal, as well as leadership that showed holiness rather than meeting other requirements. The church never considered the Montanists to be the great threat that the Gnostics and Marcion were. The Montanists separated from the church, but the two still had much in common. So the, the, the Montanists really weren't a threat as far as subverting the church's message or uh, changing the gospel. No, they, still, they still believed in these things, but they, they added some things. In the East, they added more things than in the West. In the East, they added this idea that Montanus himself had the special relationship with the Holy Spirit and that a new revelation was being received and the end of the world was near, the return of the Lord was near. Not so much in the West. In the West, the Montanists mainly uh, emphasized this, this strict moral standard. Theologically, Irenaeus, looked at before, wrote against them. He wrote against the Montanists. He upheld the very strongly, very strongly the closing of the canon and we can be very thankful that he did that, arguing that the highest revelation had been given in Jesus Christ, and thereafter we are dependent on the writings that came from the earliest communities of faith that knew best what had happened. The Holy Spirit is needed to help us understand these writings fully, but there are to be no new revelations that alter these earliest ones. In addition, Irenaeus said, that the age of the spirit had begun at the resurrection and Pentecost when the risen Christ had sent the spirit. The new age had not waited until the appearance of Montanus, but rather had begun with the birth of the church. The church opposed the Montanus stress on celibacy and I think this is significant because once again, the Catholics want to claim the church fathers from the early centuries as being Catholic, but the church did not place the stress on celibacy that the Montanists did. It also allowed second marriages for those who were widowed, and the, the Montanists wouldn't do that. They, they forbid all second marriages, no matter what. Even if you were widowed and wanted to remarry, no, they wouldn't allow it. Even Paul, who had recommended to the Corinthians that those who were not married might remain so, had based this on the nearness of the end, the expectation of the return of Christ in the near future. 
as we have seen in the conflict with Marcion. The church did not believe that Christ or the Holy Spirit had imposed a law on believers so strict that the work of grace and forgiveness was overshadowed. The Spirit helps us become holy, but this is a process of growth toward that goal rather than a constant measure of perfection. In addition, an attempt strict moral standards often provokes one schism after another. In Tertullian's case, he associated with the Montanists because they were stricter than the ordinary church. However, later in the third century, there was a group called the Tertullianists. It may well be that eventually Tertullian found the Montanists too lax and began a stricter group. We know that Montanism continued in the eastern area of the church, in rural areas in present-day Turkey, until the sixth century, when it was still opposed by the state. And we'll see later on how even, uh, even if the state embraces true Christianity, it's not good that they that they try to enforce it at the point of a bayonet, so to speak. By this time in the sixth century, the, the state had adopted Christianity or a form of Christianity. The last inherents in the East burned themselves in their churches rather than surrender their communities. Montanism had disappeared in the urban areas much earlier. It is difficult to maintain a movement based on the imminent end of the world when the date keeps changing after the earlier ones fail. In the West, where Montanism was not as apocalyptic as it was in the East, the Montanists eventually negotiated a return to the larger church. This was after Christianity had become the religion of the Roman Empire. This was accomplished fairly easily. Their only request was that their martyrs, those who had died in the great persecutions, should be considered true martyrs by the church. And listed as such in the, in the prayers. This meant that the church recognized that these Montanists had died because of their faith, which was a faith that the church believed to be truly Christian. It is possible to see Montanism as an early sort of Pentecostalism. Also, there was much difference between the two movements. There was also within the Montanist movement more of a role for women than was permitted in the church. At least in the East, there was an expectation of the end of the world very soon. So the Montanists had some similarity to Adventism and other movements that developed in the 19th century. Since they formed ascetic communities, they could be thought of as somewhat monastic. But in reality, they were not any of these. They were, especially in the West, a charismatic movement that eventually became known for its strict lifestyle in opposition to a church that was finding its way as a permanent institution in the world. 
The Montanists were forerunners of some later movements that divided history into different ages with specific characteristics for each age. The Montanists held that there were three successive ages, that of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, with increasingly strict laws. So as you, as you went from one age, one era to the next, the laws uh, became increasingly strict. Joachim of Fiorem in the late 12th and early 13th centuries held that the age of the father was the period of the Old Testament, characterized by law and fear. The age of the son began with the incarnation, time of faith and grace. The third, the age of the spirit, characterized by love, was in the process of dawning in his day, showing that the end of history was near. As I mentioned before, it seems that down through church history, somebody, every time that one of these teachers would come along and was teaching somewhat, something that was a little bit aberrant, they always fancied themselves as very important, having a very important role in the plan of God. A more complex system called dispensationalism, which you're probably familiar with, it developed in the 19th and early 20th centuries. It was made popular by Cyrus Schofield. In the Schofield Reference Bible, he divided history into seven dispensations. So this idea began very early of, of dividing uh, history into various ages, eras, dispensations. Uh, I mentioned when we were studying the book of Revelation, how many people have taken the, the seven churches in the early part of the book of Revelation as being, as representing seven different ages within church history, ages of the church. Uh, each age being having different characteristics. Against all of these movements, the wider church has generally held that only the only new age began at the resurrection of Pentecost and will continue until the return of Christ, the timing of which is known only to God. As Christians, we live in that new time with one foot, one foot in the old creation and one in the new, awaiting the full manifestation of God's rule, for which we pray daily, thy kingdom come. I wanted to spend a little bit of time now talking about some of the documents of the early church. And many of these documents I've discussed previously in connection with the church father who, who wrote that particular document. But I wanted to go through them again as a group, as a whole. So you can become familiar with some of the documents of the early church. The first one we're going to look at is the letter of Clement. We've looked at this before. This was written in about AD 96 by Clement of Rome, a presbyter or elder or bishop of the church in Rome. The letter was written around the time that John was composing the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. So this epistle is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, extant Christian documents outside the New Testament. Clement wrote the letter to try to settle a dispute in the Corinthian church. In a conflict between the older and younger generations, the Corinthian Christians had dismissed all their presbyters and replaced them with new youthful leaders. Clement's response was to emphasize the need for good order in the church. Uh, as the Apostle Paul put it, you know, everything should be done decently and in order. 
he argued that God's purpose of salvation revealed a sort of a, a sort of chain of command. God the Father sent the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ sent the apostles. The apostles appointed bishops or presbyters and deacons in the churches. And they in turn appoint their successors. A church must not disturb this chain of command by dismissing its officers without just cause, which did not exist in the case of the Corinthian presbyters. Clement therefore entreated the Corinthians to restore their deposed leaders back into office. In addition to drawing upon scripture, words of Jesus, and early Christian writings and traditions as sources of authority, Clement also makes extensive use of secular examples in his letter, some of which are the standard stuff of secular rhetoric. The portrait of cosmic harmony is largely of Stoic origins. The Stoics, remember, were a, a form of Greek philosophy. But uh, he presents a, a portrait of, of cosmic harmony as an, uh, as an illustration of how we shouldn't disrupt the harmony within the church. The familiar legend of the Phoenix is presented as an object lesson of the certainty of God's promises of the resurrection. And the Roman army, a favorite topic of the Stoics, offers a model of proper Christian behavior. The letters of Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch, if you will recall, was the church father that we looked at in the first lesson in this series. Ignatius was the bishop of the church in Antioch at the beginning of the second century. Arrested for being a Christian, he was taken to Rome by a military escort where the authorities executed him in about AD 110. As Ignatius journeyed to Rome, he wrote seven letters to the churches of Ephesus, Magnesia, Trellis, Philadelphia, and Smyrna, all in Asia Minor, and the Church of Rome, and a personal letter to Polycarp, bishop of the church in Smyrna. So at this time, Polycarp was still a young man. Later on, as an elderly man, he was martyred. In the seven letters of Ignatius of Antioch, we possess one of the richest sources understanding Christianity in the era immediately after that of the apostles. These letters manifest, in the words of biblical scholar Bruce Metzger, such strong faith and overwhelming love in, of Christ as to make them one of the finest literary expressions of Christianity during the second century. It is evident that three concerns were uppermost in Ignatius' mind as he wrote his letters. First of all, he longed to see unity at every level in the life of the local churches to which he was writing. It is important to note that this commitment to Christian unity did not override a passion for truth. He, in other words, he wasn't saying unity at all costs. Unity was unity in the gospel and in the Christian faith. Thus his second major concern was an ardent desire that his fellow believers stand fast in their common faith against heresy. While there is no scholarly consensus as to the number of heresies in view in Ignatius' letters, it is clear that one of them was a form of docetism. 
which maintained that the incarnation of Christ and consequently his death and resurrection did not really take place. So the Docetists were among those who were Gnostic in their beliefs, who believed that matter was bad and that Christ could really have been material and couldn't have really died. Finally, Ignatius was eager to recruit the help of his correspondence in the successful completion of his own vocation, which was nothing less than a call to martyrdom. So he felt that he was about to be martyred, and he was, and it was unavoidable and inescapable. So he besought his readers to help him, encourage him in that process. In these letters, Ignatius strongly urged the supreme importance of unity in the local church, arguing that this unity depended on having one bishop in charge of each congregation. Remember, the, re the reason he felt that that was so important is because this was very early in the second century. So at this time, we still have bishops and elders who were appointed by the apostles. So he felt that, that was very important to have each church under the guidance of a bishop appointed by the apostles to protect against heresy. Ignatius' letters reveal a deep spiritual devotion to Christ and an enthusiastic longing to sacrifice his life for Christ's sake. The Didache. This is one I don't believe I talked about very much. Didache is the, is the Greek word for teaching. This is the oldest surviving handbook of church discipline. Dating from about AD 100. It originated from Syria and its full title is the teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles through the 12 apostles. It is divided into two parts. Part one concerns doctrinal teaching to be given to Christians based on a contrast between the way of life and the way of death. Part two is about various practices, prayer, fasting, baptism, the Lord's Supper, church leadership, how to handle visiting prophets. This is uh, one of the reasons that scholars think that, that the Didache was written very early because it was written at a time when there still were prophets in the church. The two ways material appears to have been intended as a summary of basic instruction about the Christian life to be taught to those who are preparing for baptism, church membership. It represents the Christianization of a common Jewish form of moral instruction. So the church simply took this Jewish form of instruction and employed it in the teaching of, of the Christian faith. The second part of the Didache contains the oldest known Christian Eucharistic prayers and a form of the Lord's Prayer quite similar to that found in the Gospel of Matthew. There is a concern to differentiate Christian practice from Jewish piety and to prevent abuses of the church's hospitality. Christians are to be hospitable, but of course there are some who would take advantage of that hospitality. The document closes with a brief apocalyptic session 
that has much in common with the Olivet Discourse. Remember the Olivet Discourse that, that uh, Jesus gave? Let me find that uh, described in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. So the book closes with, it, with this uh, apocalyptic prophetic warning of what is about to happen. The Fragments of Papias. This is another one that I don't believe I've talked about this one before. This is from AD around 110 to 130, that, that time frame. Papias was the bishop of the church in Hierapolis in Phrygia, Asia Minor. He set out to preserve as much as he could of the deeds and sayings of Christ, which had not been recorded in the Gospels, collecting accounts of these deeds and sayings from Jewish Christians who had been dispersed from Jerusalem, who in turn claimed they had received them from the apostles. Many of these alleged sayings of Christ are very strange. The church as a whole did not recognize them as genuine, although some Christians accepted some of them. The letter of Barnabas. This is from about AD 120. This was probably written in Alexandria. It is an essay on how to interpret the Old Testament in a Christian way. The letter is quite anti-Jewish in tone, claiming that the Jews misunderstood God by taking certain parts of the Old Testament law literally, where God meant them to be understood in a symbolic or spiritual sense. So we can see in that um, sort of a, a tone that we found in the Ebionites. Remember those the Jewish Christians who misinterpreted the Old Testament, let us say. The anti-Jewish spirit of the letter of Barnabas shows how quickly events had cut the church off from its Jewish roots. For most Christians, the Jews now simply meant those who had crucified Christ and continued to reject him, a lost blind people. This attitude produced among many Christians a mindless hostility to the Jews. Although Barnabas displays the form of a letter, the epistolary framework is largely a literary device. The largest part of the document is a polemic essay that seeks to persuade and convince something of a tract for the times in it, the author shares with his readers knowledge that he himself has received, that is, traditional material, along with what he considers to be his own choicest insights. The author then presents as another kind of knowledge and teaching, a version of the two ways. Uh, we saw this, uh, this idea of the two ways uh, also in the Didache, remember? So this was a very popular way of presenting these ideas in the early church. The, the two ways, one of light and one of darkness. The former is comprised almost entirely of do's and don'ts, while the latter is a description of evil actions and persons. Just as in the Didache, this represents a, a Christian application of a common Jewish form of moral instruction. Unifying the two major sections of the document and the epistolary framework is a pervasive ethical concern set within an eschatological perspective. That is, the struggle between good and evil in the present evil age will soon come to an end 
with the arrival of the age to come and its accompanying judgment for which Christians must be prepared. This conviction leads a, lends a note of urgency to the exhortations um, throughout the document. So in other words, Christians need to be prepared. Christians need to wake up because the end is coming. The Shepherd of Hermas. Now this was a, a book that was very popular in the early church. It was written sometime between 100 and 140 AD. Written in Rome, this was said to be the work of a Christian prophet called Hermas. In the shepherd, Hermas claimed to have received a series of revelations from two heavenly figures, an old woman and an angel dressed as a shepherd. Hermas' main concern was with the moral purity of the church and the question of whether Christians can be forgiven for committing serious sins after baptism. Remember, that was a, a big issue in the early church, whether or not you could sin seriously after baptism, how many times. He argued that serious post-baptismal sin could only be forgiven once. Incidentally, there were actually some Christians in the early church who thought that the shepherd of Hermas should be included in the uh, New Testament canon. Um, I think you can see why uh, this document didn't make the cut. We can be very thankful that it didn't. The letter of Polycarp to the Philippians. I mentioned this when I talked about Polycarp. This was written about AD 110. Polycarp, who lived about 70 to 160 AD, was the bishop of the church of Smyrna in Asia Minor. Remember, he was serving there. He just began serving there when uh, Ignatius went through and wrote a letter to him while Ignatius was on his way to be executed, be martyred. Polycarp himself was one of the most famous martyrs of the second century as an elderly man. His letter to the church in Philippi is perhaps the best document from the age of the apostolic fathers for giving us a feeling of what typical mainstream Christianity was like in this period. Polycarp, Polycarp's letter was mostly made up of quotations from the New Testament. He warned the Philippians against departing from apostolic doctrine, and especially against the heresy of docetism, which I mentioned before, denied the death of Christ and asserted that Christ's sufferings were not genuine. Christ didn't really suffer. He also exhorted them to live upright Christian lives, admonishing them against the sin of greed and urged on them the duty of submitting to their presbyters, to their elders. A letter to Dionysus, I spent some time on this too, I think in the second uh, session maybe of our lessons. It was written about AD 100 to 150, sometime in there. No one knows who wrote this letter or who Dionysus, the recipient of the letter was. The letter set out to show that the falsehood of paganism and Judaism and the superior teaching of Christianity 
Many readers have found it to be the most noble and beautiful of all Christian writings from this earliest period. The letter to Dionysus is one of the most attractive of the second century apologies, a spirited and stirring defense of the truth of the Christian worldview. It has been described as the pearl of early Christian apologetics. It stems from the joyous faith of a man who stands amazed at the revelation of God's love in his son and who is seeking to persuade a Greco-Roman pagan by the name of Dionysus to make a commitment to the Christian life. In the first chapter of the treatise, the author notes that Dionysus is interested in learning about the Christian faith. He has three specific questions that he wants answered. I have noticed, most excellent Dionysus, the deep interest you have been showing in Christianity and the close and careful inquiries you have been making about it. You would like to know what God Christians believe in and what sort of worship they practice, which enables them to set so little store by this world and even to make light of death itself, since they reject the deities revered by the Greeks, no less than they disclaim the superstitions professed by the Jews. You are curious too about the warm paternal affection we all feel for one another. The Greeks and the Romans were very mystified by this love, this deep abiding love that Christians had for one another, because that was not that was simply not the case with the Roman society in general, that they cared about people. Also, you are puzzled as to why this new race of men or at least this novel manner of life, has only come into our lives recently instead of much earlier. The first question is basically an inquiry about who is the Christian God. It is rooted in the fact that the Greeks and Romans regularly accused the early Christians of being atheists since they refused to worship the Greek and Roman gods. The second question, why do Christians love each other the way they do, is especially noteworthy. Many pagans were struck by the way that the ancient church was a community of love, something very different from their own experience of social relationships. The final question has its basis in the Greek and Roman reverence for antiquity. What was true had to be ancient, and what was recent it was suspect. If Christianity was true, why had the cultures of the ancients not known of it? The recent origin of Christianity thus posed a major stumbling block for acceptance of his truth claims. Now in our day, Christianity is thought of as an old religion, but at this time in the second century, it was a, a very newfangled thing as far as the Romans were concerned. These are the three questions that the letter addresses. If any of you are interested in going to the original sources and reading some of these documents from the early church, there's a very good book called, simply called The Apostolic Fathers. It's uh, edited by Michael Holmes. And it's just a compilation of these, these book, these early writings of the church that I've mentioned. There's a little bit of commentary uh, at the beginning of each book where it tells you basically what the book is about and who wrote it and when it was written and so on. But for the most part, it's just these documents that I've described uh, of, of the early church. It's called simply the Apostolic Fathers. The Apostolic Fathers are those who would have known 
the church fathers who would have known the apostles personally. Of course, as time went on, church fathers didn't know the apostles personally, but uh, the apostolic fathers did. And so that's a good uh, a good source that I can recommend to you of uh, looking at these early church writings. So that will conclude our study for this evening, and I'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we bow our heads and come before you once again to give you thanks and give you praise for the way that you have providentially guided your church down through history, protected it from all of the heretical movements that have come against it, whether they involved drastic changes to the word of God or whether they simply involved minor quote-unquote additions to, to the beliefs and the teachings of the church. We thank you that you have protected us from all of these dangers, all of these heresies. We ask that you would help us to be ever vigilant, ever discerning about the many teachings that we have to contend with in our day. We ask that you would help us to remain steadfast and loyal and faithful to the teachings of the church that have been faithfully delivered to us. We would seek those to pass those on and to proclaim their truth to the world around us. We ask that you would help us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.